Welcome! This is the Hassan Sorrells Audio Experience. My name is Hassan Sorrells. Look, we are trying something different. So I want you to join us on the Hassan Sorrells Presents Audio Experience for interviews, for rants, for raves, for thoughts, for process. And you'll get a knee-deep, hip-deep, and ear-deep view inside of what I do. Look, if you like what you're listening to, please like me, please rank me, Stitcher, iTunes, Overcast, Google Play Music, everywhere where you get your groove on, I want you to give me a few stars. All right, now, let's head into the experience. Uh, so we're just going to start recording. This is <laughs> this is kind of the thing we're just we're just going to start. Um So yeah, welcome to the show. SJ how do we pronounce your last name? How is that? How how would the listeners pronounce your last name? Bear a cone four syllables phonetic. Bear a cone. All right, cool. Given the phonetic spelling for all of those AI listeners out there. So uh, yeah, wanted to have you on the show today because we are. I mean, we've been talking about we've been talking about a bunch of different stuff, you know, on this um, on this podcast lately. Um, so this is not our big boy podcast. This isn't you know the big one that we do. This is more of a sort of grab bag. This this podcast is a grab bag. The Hey Sansarell's audio experience. So this is where I talk to interesting people and try to suss out some things for them for our listeners. Usually for an hour, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less, whatever. Um, so we'll see where we go with uh, where we wind up with this today. But you and I got connected through Lunch Club. Which is an interesting little uh, little platform, um, and then actually no, I got connected to a guy you know named Joe, and then Joe connected us, and I connected Joe through um, through uh, through both Lunch Club and through a networking platform. So that's kind of how we all got connected and, and are now here. Um, so tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what the Education Sherpa is, and what do you do? Um, absolutely. Well, first of all, I am grateful for the opportunity. And as is my goal, um, is to serve, to solve, and to share. So we'll, 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 we'll flag this one under the share and trust that I'm also serving as well. So again, I am SJ, which is my name, and it's not initials. And then we already heard my last name. So who am I? I like to do my best to answer that without a whole lot of professional veneer, a little bit more about, you know, make myself a little bit more, you know, a little more personable. So I would use these words. Um, I am, I am committed. I am a people person. I believe in leadership. So I am a thought and a servant leader to the best of my ability. I am a big supporter of families, although I do not presently have a family. I am single without kids, but I am blessed that my mother and father are still alive and well, and I have no siblings. I am a believer. I have faith. And then I would say the last word about who I am is I am a big believer in entrepreneurship and how it feeds lifelong learning and how lifelong learning feeds entrepreneurship. So that would be some words for the who. Now, when we get into the what, 
there's some how components as well. So what exactly is a Sherpa? I think maybe we start there. A Sherpa is a guide, a trail guide, if you will. Think about, close your eyes if, when you're listening or watching this, and imagine if you were in a dark forest or in a jungle setting, or maybe the lights went out at your house and you can't see and you forgot where the flashlight was. You need a guide, right? You need someone to light the trail, give you a pathway. That's a Sherpa. And I am the education Sherpa. Now I'm blessed that I know a couple other Sherpas in my professional network and they have other focuses where they are exactly that in a different modality. But in my case, I define education as drawing out from within, highlighting what's already in someone. That is the classic Latin definition of education, which regrettably the Western world has completely lost over the past century plus. So I wanna restore that concept of education to honor the ancients who left it with us because we can absolutely use that in the present and the future without being labeled as nostalgic, if you will. So the, the Education Sherpa delivers four highly customizable, flexible solutions. And I can cover anything from an individual person, such as a single parent, such as a college student, perhaps it's a self-employed person, a side hustler, a gigger, I can work with families of all sizes, so households, homes, parents, grandparents, guardians, and kids, grandkids. I can also work with in groups with uh, business people or with groups of parents or teachers. And then I also do a niche form of consulting, which I label as the future of work, which is informed by the future of education because those two are interdependent and they feed each other. Just like I believe lifelong learning and entrepreneurship feed one another bilaterally, I believe the same thing for future work and future of education. So that's what I'm doing is I'm delivering any of those four solutions as a part of my serve, solve, share framework. So that is the education Sherpa. All right. So there's a lot there uh, to unpack. <laughs> there's a lot there to uh, to kind of to kind of go through. So let's start with sort of how how did you, you know, discover this? Because I'm sure young SJ wasn't waking up in the morning going, hey, mom, dad, I'm going to wind up being an education Sherpa. Uh, you know, that's going to be my path. And, and I'm sure if you did wind up saying that, I'm sure little SJ did wind up saying that. So I'm sure that, you know, your mom and dad, you know, were like, hey, would, would have been supportive, right? You know, if you had said, hey, I want to be, I want to be the education sheriff. So how did you wind up in this space and doing this work? Kind of walk us through, you know, a couple moments, walk us in a couple minutes, walk us through this path to how you got here. Um, be my, would be my pleasure. Um, something that I believe, and depending on who in your audience is going to be downloading, listening, watching this, or perhaps it's someone new. Something I believe in strongly as part of the future of work is so-called career paths, or I would prefer to 
see a, fu- a lot more people call them callings or vocations. Okay. I think it's a higher plane of consciousness and awareness. So whatever you wish to call them, career path or callings, vocation, they're no longer linear. Mm-hmm. Neither was mine. Right. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll trace it here with some, uh, we'll do a little treetop skimming and we'll hit a couple key turning points for, for you all. Yeah. So when I was little, smaller, you know, middle school, high school, mm-hmm. I can still remember, and this will show how nonlinear it is, even for a Gen Xer like me. So if you're a millennial wire or a Zoomer out there, it's even more, it's even more squiggly. But I said, mommy, daddy, or mom, dad, as I got older, mm-hmm. I want to be an astronaut. And then it was, I want to be a firefighter. And then eventually it's like, I want to be a millionaire businessman with a mansion. Okay. So these are some of the things that I'm talking about back then. And then a couple key things. Uh, first, my father sold his self-employed solopreneur business that he ran, ran for almost 20 years when I was in the beginning of high school. Mm-hmm. So that was a turning point. So I didn't have any place to land in a family type business, AKA Gen 2, version 2, um, when I got done. Secondly, the um, all the collegiate stuff started to flood in and this is dating myself this is back before the internet so it was all sent by oh my goodness snail mail postal mail <laughs> so i got I got, I got most of my approvals by snail mail too so i mean like yeah i think we're i think we're both in the same spot on that one <laughs> yes so again if you're a y or z or you're thinking these two guys are old yeah well it's fine <laughs> <laughs> But so anyway, so that was another turning point is I got led down that path and I eventually picked a private liberal arts institution. And I don't mind giving them a shout out uh, to Owu is how you pronounce it. Um, And then when I got there, the other turning point was and I found out years later that this is just baked into the collegiate cake is they oftentimes do not know because they're insular, they're in a bubble. They don't know how to talk about entrepreneurship in a college setting, at least back then. Mm-hmm. It's getting better now. Yeah. But so I got led into, oh, you need to have a resume. You need to have a, you have to go to job fairs. You need to test your interview skills. So knowing that I didn't have a father I can go work for, I followed that path. And it led me to a very, it led me into my first frustrations, which were um, applying for positions and hearing back something along these lines. And raise your hand in the audience or nod or whatever, or comment on the video when this is posted later. Tell me if you've had this happen to you. You have great qualifications, but no experience. Oh. <laughs> We love all the activities that you did in college. It looks like you are a very, very well-rounded person, but we are looking for X amount of years. That's right. Well, so, and, and, well, and yeah, go ahead. not to interrupt you, but like the, the, the writer Peter Thiel talks about like 
how this is a sign of indefinite optimism that we have in America, right? He writes about this in his book, Great Book Zero to One. I quoted from it extensively in my in my book that's upcoming. Um, and, uh, you know, it's this idea that we're not going to, we know the future is going to be good. We're optimistic in America, but we're not quite sure how we're going to get there. We're not going to make a plan. So, you know, we're just going to go do every single activity we can do. We're going to do every single, um, they're going to take advantage of every single uh, financial opportunity we can. And we're going to be this grab bag of wandering generalities and maybe somehow we'll wind up at the future. And <laughs> that's his main knock against higher education is that it's this wandering grab bag of stuff. Now, of course, the irony is Peter Thiel did the initial zero to one lectures at Stanford. Peter Thiel graduated from Stanford. And so there you go. But I mean, like, <laughs> but I mean, like, I, I think everybody's kind of hit the moment where like they went click, the light bulb kind of went off in their head about uh, how higher education, and this was usually in the 90s, how higher education maybe wasn't matching the promise of what was actually in the real world. Exactly. And I, so my story and I'm a fan of Donald Miller's um, framework, building a story brand. So my story was, is I was hoping to be a hero, right? Um, you know, that archetype, you know, or find a hero that I can follow, but I was running into brick walls very early. So here I am in my early twenties. I had put all this time into a classroom. So we were wrapping up 17 years in a classroom. And I'm getting this kind of stuff back. And yeah. that was an early sign something was not right. Yeah. So further seeds were planted for what became the Sherpa. Then, so then I go off and for a roughly 15 years, I run through three separate industries in the corporate world, AKA W2 land, where mm -hmm. someone else is paying your freight. Mm -hmm. And that included wage work as well as salary work bonuses. The only thing I did not do in those 15 years was work for or get any commissions. Mm -hmm. So three of the four common ways you get paid by other people I went through. Mm -hmm. And all three of them have their own drawbacks. Don't get me wrong in the audience. I do believe in honest work mm -hmm. and I'm all for it. If you love what you're doing and you're bought in law buy in from Maxwell, mm -hmm. but I was not bought in. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the Gallup and Barna studies, are showing that we've been stuck persistently, maybe at the low end, 65%. I'm now hearing it's upwards of 80%, you know? Yeah, I was on a, I was on a call yesterday with a training and development company. I won't say them because like people will know who they are, but a training and development company. That's and right. And Gallup measured, what was it? Uh, uh, dissatisfied or disengaged workers. Uh, back in 2016, which is the last time we actually have numbers for it, which is, again, I'm sure Gallup is just like twitching on the floor in 2022 <laughs> with this number. But like, but like in 2016, it was something like 32% uh, of workers were disengaged and 16% were um, fully and completely disengaged from their work. I am sure, because again, that was 2016. I am sure in the last six years and with COVID that we all just went through, yeah, those numbers are significantly higher. And I, again, I haven't seen any numbers because Gallup is like, like I said, twitching on the floor. They don't want to do the polling. <laughs> I think they're scared. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's almost, it's almost like a, it's almost like a potpourri, a buffet, um, you know, uh, of, of, 
stuff that they're going to be going through as they sort this all out. Right. Oh yeah. Um, so I was one of those people. Mm-hmm. So here's another part of the seeds being planted. So after going through three separate industries mm-hmm. and having, it wasn't all negative cynical or anything, but it was yeah. sort of building up. It's sort of like plaque in your arteries. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or, plaque on your teeth or, you know, pick something like that. That's not so pleasant, Mm -hmm. but that was building up on my professional veneer. Right. I was, my windows were dirty. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then here comes the next turning point. So there was a friend of mine at my last stop in corporate life who we would talk a lot because we were both in different parts of a soulless and forgive me for being a little blunt here corporation. Mm -hmm. And he and I, would talk because we were working on a project together mm-hmm. and we got to become friends in a workplace. And that's not super common. Most people are not your friends in a workplace, they're acquaintances. And he happened to hear enough from me that he knew of someone in his network, a buddy of his that he hadn't talked to a whole lot, but he said, I know someone that I think might be able to give you some hope SJ So he said, I'm going to connect you to. So he connected me to a guy named Terry. This guy's name was Justin. And Terry, cutting it short because of time, because I can talk about this stuff forever, but that's for a future book. So Terry ended up becoming, after two conversations, my first mentor. And this is literally, as of the time of this recording, for your audience's benefit, 12 years ago this past week. All right. So 12 years ago, this past week was the final real big turning point is I was now being mentored. Mm-hmm. And then it took another 18 months before I got enough of the dirt off the windows, enough of the crud off the, the professional veneer. Mm-hmm. And then I said, it's time for a side hustle. I need to do something. I need to start building a bridge out of here. Yeah. So I started building the bridge. It took me a shade over three years before I thought I was good to go. Mm-hmm. And I went through three phases. I went through a mental phase, a social cultural phase, and a financial phase. Mm-hmm. And then when I had those boxes checked off, and I realized later that's what I went through, I blogged about it. Yeah. So then I said, I am ready. So I wrote my retirement letter to corporate America. I love that. (laughs) I wasn't resigning per se. I was retiring from corporate America. And I did this. Let's see. So I did this when I was, let me do some math in my head. I was 39 years old Mm -hmm. and now I'm 46 at the time of this um, being this interview. Mm -hmm. So a little over seven years later. So at age 39, if this is something that where I can serve your audience or solve for them, you know, solve for X, if you will. Yes, you absolutely can retire from corporate life at any age. Do not fall for the fact you have to be 59 and a half or 62 or 65 or 71. You just got to make a decision. And I had a bridge built between what I refer to as the C pathway corporate, the E pathway entrepreneurial. I followed it. And over seven years later, even with the wild world of Corona, C-19, COVID, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. I'm still standing. 
and I'm having this conversation today. So that is how I got here. So I retired at 34, <laughs> uh, not, not comparing ages, but like I, I, I retired at like 34 and it was like, you know, I, you know, I've never framed it that way in my head. That's an interesting framing. I just was like, I'm going to go off and build this other thing. And partially for me, it was need, you know, I had, you know, I have a family and so there's like a need there. Um, <clears throat> I also like to eat. So there's that, uh, you know, that's critical <laughs> and I like having a place to live and I, I enjoy wearing clothes. So, I mean, like that's, that's like the three major ones. Right. And then occasionally, you know, I may like, you know, I may want to go to the movies or I may want to hang out with my kids and, you know, not have be focused on the basics. Right. So like, you, you know, you need, you need cash for that. But the other dynamic was there was nothing in my geographic area that was a quote unquote fit for me and the industry I came out of, which for me was higher education, the industry I came out of and the, the area of it that I came out of, I, number one, no one had ever made a path forward for me. No one ever, ever plotted a path forward for me, but all, but even more importantly, and even with, without that, I probably would have been fine. No one in that industry indicated a level of confidence that I would even be able to have a path forward. And I said, forget all of you, except I use a different word, but forget all of you. Because <laughs> at that time, I was a little bit still a little bit unredeemed. I'm, I'm, a little, I'm better now, but I'm a little bit unredeemed then. And so, uh, you know, just forget it. Like, I'm out, you know. And but that gave me the you talk about courage, because that's, I think, that the fundamental thing that you're trying to get across here. Uh, for our for our, our viewers and our listeners, and I think that's critical for anybody who wants to go down that E path versus the C path. I love how you framed it that way. If you want to go down that E path, that takes courage. It also takes planning and commitment. It also takes a measure of clear eyedness, right? A measure of clarity, right? Um, and the tragedy is most people don't get that kind of clarity until they're fifty nine and a half years in. They just don't get it, right? Um, or they are, they're held down by all the have tos, like Gulliver being held down by Lilliputians have to do this and have to do that. And I loved how you talked to going about going through those three kind of doors. That's how I visualized it in my head, the financial door, the sociocultural door. And what was that third door? A uh, mental mental, right? The mental door, right? Okay, exactly. Yeah. The mental door. So, and, and for, for me, at least from my perspective, the hardest door to go through is the mental door. I would, I would concur because without getting too deep into this, because again, this yeah. is a topic that you can talk about for hours by itself, but oh yeah, wherever your viewers are, or your downloaders are, your listeners, I will frame it by saying that I have been an American my whole life. I've only traveled to one other nation, Canada. So I don't have the framing for other Western nations, G7, G20, let alone uh, South Pacific, Africa, South America, etc. So please uh, bear with me on that if you happen to be from there. But here in the, in North America, especially, we have settled and it's it's been it's been changing sort of like it's almost been like changing almost like at the pace of how bamboo grows. <laughs> and what it is is we have sort of been turning back or not sort of we have been. Mm -hmm. turning back towards where we were in America 
and I'm a historian, by the way, I minored in history as part of my liberal arts. And I deeply, deeply love history because over these last 12 years, since I first started being mentored, I have learned so much about history. So not only am I a futurist, but I'm a historian. So there's an interesting combination. But history tells me that this country was primarily founded by hardy people who you could say were entrepreneurial. They carved their way out of a wilderness. You think about where I am in the state of Ohio, which is in Midwest. This was carved out as one of five states out of the Northwest Ordinance, which used mm -hmm. to be just a bunch of swampland and forest and, you know, and we lost that because we went through a change called the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution spawned, and this is not well understood, mm -hmm. two back-to-back -back industrial eras. Mm -hmm. The first yeah. one was the factory era where people would go to an urban center primarily and clock into a factory. Yep. But then here's the one that's the least understood. Then especially after the war and after demobilization, we entered what William White referred to as the organization man era. Oh, yeah. Or, or woman, man, if, the, again, or person, if you want to define it that way. The gender-neutral person in the gray flannel suit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So pick your favorite, but the book is called The Organization Man by William White. Yeah. And we entered into that era called the white-collar or the corporate industrial age, hmm. where people were being literally fed on a conveyor belt out of classrooms, not right. into factories now. Right. But into office buildings. Office so space. The, it's the movie Office Space. Like Exactly. <laughs> that movie. Great movie, by the way. Oh my god, I love that movie so much. <laughs> I've watched it twice recently because it's very <laughs> inspirational. If you have a downtime on the E pathway, watch that movie. You, you should, yeah. Um, so I ended up because I'm a Gen Xer, boomers were sort of caught between the two, but Xers were almost exclusively in the corporate industrial white collar age. Mm-hmm. So when I mentioned earlier to your audience that I've been through, I went through three industries, all of them were in some way, shape or form, white collar yeah, management, if you will. Okay. So that was, that was also informing part of my journey was looking back now through the eyes of the Sherpa all these years later and saying, okay, so that is the development of this nation. And we lost our way when it came to the e-pathway because you used to have artisans who were all independent you think about the wild you think about the uh, western era you've seen in certain movies you had a blacksmith you had a guy who cut meat you know you had um a guy who ran the cannery um you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and that was the way we did we, we did it. or you could think of my father's and i'm gonna honor my father for a minute here mm -hmm. My father's birthday is in about a month, so I'm honor my dad. Mm -hmm. um, his one of his favorite shows of all time was Little House on the Prairie. Oh yes, Laura Ingalls Wilder's big big books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I did not like that show growing up, but now I deeply appreciate it because it was talking about. Think about it. They ran one of the earliest phone systems with that oh, yeah. hand crank system, right? But guess what? It was a family enterprise. Mm-hmm in sleepy eye and such. So we lost all that to some very great degree. So part of what I am doing 
is shining the light again, the trail guide as the Sherpa to say that we can get that back one household, one individual at a time. And again, if you want to stay C or if you want to go into the A academia pathway or even the public service, which I refer to as the S for short pathway, that's fine. Adam Smith says in Wealth and Nations that you have to have a division of labor to be a healthy civil society. So I'm fine with that. But again, it's all about, are you getting joy out of your work? Is it more of a vocation than an occupation to you? And that also informs this ongoing journey that I'm on. And again, that is where we sit today as we record. So when we think about this, you know, the thing that I think of, and it's ironic that you brought up, you brought up Western expansion because, well, not ironic, but it's interesting that you brought up Western expansion because I'm actually reading a book right now for the other podcast called Slouching Towards Bethlehem by Joan Didion. And she has an essay in there. Second essay in there is called, um, it's called a John Wayne or something like that. And I think of the Paula Cole song, where is, you know, where have all the cowboys gone? That's the thing that always rests in my head, um, where she has that line in it, where is my John Wayne? And the myth of John Wayne is tied so tightly, well, not the myth of John Wayne, the myths that John Ford built around the, and inside of the container that was John Wayne as a symbol of American masculinity in the 1950s and 1960s and, and, and then waning in the 1970s. And by the way, this is why, and I'm also a movie guy, this is why the Western genre doesn't work anymore in America. People don't understand why it doesn't work. And I, I'm, I, I know the reason, if anybody wants to hear it, the reason why is exactly what SJ was just talking about here. The reason why the myth of the West, of westward expansion and the myth, of the, the myth of the West and the actual fact of the West doesn't doesn't um, doesn't doesn't stir people's hearts anymore is because as he was saying through industrialization and organizational you know corporatization we have lost the not lost we have um, we have sought to uh, I would say minimize that that e path that entrepreneurial path and he's exactly correct look I'm a historian too the people who came to this country were people that wanted to get, number one, you had to have guts to get on a boat. And we, we underestimate this, by the way, by quite a bit. You had to have the guts to get on a boat first and leave your own country. Then when you got here, you had to have the guts to stay here. And then you had to have the guts to leave the place where you were when you were here on the East Coast and go forth and, and go forth into the West. Now, let me let me give all of the caveats. Were there native peoples in the West? Yes, absolutely. They had vibrant cultures, and yes, we ran them over. And and we, I mean, that, that that's just what that's just what we. And by the way, we, I mean culturally, we the West did. Okay, cool. Were did we bring slaves over uh, for four hundred years to do hard labor in the South and the North and the West and the East? Yes, and there's history of slavery everywhere in the world at all times, even now today. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why African American slavery is so fraught with specificity. Uh, well, yes, actually, I do know the answer to that question, too. I know why. But um, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm just giving the caveat. Yes, we had that. Um, did women and uh, other minorities, did they not were they not uh, equal in a feminist uh, late 20th century, early 21st century sense? Yes, absolutely. For sure. And so what? And so what? Like, the thing is, when you actually go and you look at what 
and and again, you're a historian, and, and I'm an amateur historian, but when you actually go and look at what people did, and when you actually go and look, look at what people wrote about what they did, like I'm reading other things I'm reading right now. I'm reading black slave narratives, and I'm also reading um, uh, Booker T. Washington's Up from Slavery, and I'm reading W.E.B. Du Bois' Souls of Black Folks as I'm preparing for another podcast that's that's happening you know, further down the road. Um, I'm also reading works by Laura Ingalls Wilder and Pearl Buck, who went further west and then she went east, but like Pearl Buck and Virginia Woolf. Like there have been these people who have told the story of all those underrepresented folks in the culture and they but they but they believe fundamentally in the West in this idea of westward expansion that there's always a new horizon to achieve there's always a new goal to accomplish and I think actually that's why we have a lack of cultural confidence in America I think that's what we've been experiencing for the last 20 years I think 9-11 really screwed us up it, it it really did and I don't think I don't think the ripples have fully gone out of the pond from that rock being thrown into it um well 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 um well framed um america goes through epochs it goes through cycles um there are multiple thought leaders and because we, we, we won't be able to get into all that today but there are multiple thought leaders that i have encountered over now 12 years well, next month will mark 12 years because my first mentor was this month so as of may he said basically in a manner of speaking he started to he started to suggest that i become a student again so i read my first book that i wanted to better myself the following month in may of 10 and it just started a ripple effect right and then i started to read some history and many many other disciplines and then diagram overlaps right and along the way i have run into a, a lot of the stuff you just discussed and I, I'm nodding my head back here because it, it, it is absolutely the case. There is certainly, um, how can I say this? There is certainly, there needs to be some vulnerability and some grace and understanding, perhaps or some other words to use that yes, it was not the westward expansion, manifest destiny, it was not, certainly a perfect process things were done that should not have been done to people that already lived on those lands no question about it let alone if you advance the story forward into the um civil war era let alone reconstruction um let alone the era of the titans of industry which is where this conveyor belt um factory model of what they call education but i frankly call it schooling myself and a lot of other people are starting to realize that too. But all this stuff sort of lays layers. Or here's a better visual. Close your eyes on this, perhaps. Have you ever been to a, a forest or on some sort of a nature walk and you've seen a tree that's cut down and you see all the rings? The rings of history are informative. Mm -hmm. And even when we think of the pop culture. So you mentioned the movie piece of this, which is certainly a way we can become more relatable and build more rapport with people. 
oh, movies are downstream from culture because they're just reflections of the cultural myths that we all believe in. And then politics is even further downstream from that. Like, I don't, I don't care about yeah. politics. I care way more about movies than I do about politics because movies are movies and television and yeah. increasingly social media. But primarily movies and television, they are the reflections yeah. of sort of, well, I will say this. I, let me, let me get even more specific. The best movies yeah. and the best television shows are reflections not of individual writers and and directors and actors and artists and producers or even corporations they are reflections of the cultural time in which from which they come and that is why certain movies are just unremakeable like you'll never remake citizen kane he's never it'll never be touched because there's certain things that orson wells said in there and did in there and maybe the closest remake you could get to Citizen Kane is The Social Network. Maybe that gets close. But again, The Social Network is bounded for its time, just in the same way that Citizen Kane is. Um, and I'll go on, go into a non-heavy film, Pillow Talk with Doris Day and Rock Hudson. You could never remake that movie now. You just can't. Like, there's just no way to do it. Number one, um, where are you gonna, where are you going to find an actor? who is so willing to subsume their own personal identity into a role to sell the role that they are fully willing to commit to that. And then particularly in the politicized era in which we currently live. And then where are you going to find a writer who will write a story that is so hyper traditional. And you talk about the myth of the West that is so yeah. hyper traditional that even though you have two actors who are living non-traditional personal lives, they were willing to put all of that on the back burner because they believed in furthering cultural norms, even though no one had to tell them that that was what they were doing. Where are you going to find that? You can, you're not going to find that today. We are in a totally different spot. And movies are reflective of their time, and certain movies are absolutely unremakeable because they sit in their time. Um, yes, and I'll throw two more movies on the pile here before we may or may not go in a different direction. So yeah, we're going to ping more... in a different direction here after this. <laughs> <laughs> I figured I figured we were so I was um, I was waiting for the uh, direction from the from the host here. So yeah. let me throw two more <laughs> let me throw two more on the pile here for consideration for your audience and your viewers. They're two of my well one of them's one of my all-time favorites. The other one I have an appreciation for, but I don't watch it a lot in terms of second and third viewers. I think I've seen it maybe two or three times. So the one I've seen two or three times that I appreciate, because it, I think it was one of the last attempts to keep that Western mythos alive was Unforgiven. Oh, what yes. Eastwood? Yes, yes. Okay, yes. and Gene Hackman. Yep. That might have been the last real good attempt. Yep. Okay. And that was, by the way, at the time of recording, 30, 30 years ago. Okay. Yeah. And obviously, as you noted, and I certainly was nodding, uh, the let's see, what has happened in the last 30 years? Well, we had um, we had uh, Y2K. Mm -hmm. We had 9-11. Uh, mm -hmm. We had what some call the Great Recession, but I personally believe was a depression. Mm -hmm. And then this then more recently, of course, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So four major shocks in 30 years. Mm hmm. So, and then the second movie, Shawshank Redemption. Oh. Absolutely adore the movie. 
And I want to use this as a briefly as a framework to back up the train for a minute and bring a little full circle before we go to the next stop on the tracks Mm -hmm. and say, use that movie truly to define your professional pathway, whether it's squiggly like the vast majority of people are, or whether it might still be linear. I would say Zinwa Tanejo is the E pathway usually. Mm -hmm. And I would say Shawshank is the occupational career pathway. Hmm. Okay. Because most people get locked into something that they really don't like, but their level of motivation is at the basement level, level one, financial and monetary. Mm. I can pay my bills. Right. Fine. That is, that has its role. Like you correctly, like you shared earlier in your story. Absolutely. And I'm the same way over the last seven years, since I've been the E pathway exclusively, I've had some times where I've had to back up the train to take care of that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Especially during the COVID era. Um, And then you have um, that third level and I'm skipping the second because of time. The third level is your purpose, your legacy, your mission, your destiny. So that's where manifest destiny lied in the 1830s through the 1850s was destiny, right? They had a clear purpose. They had a mission. They were going to go westward expansion Mm -hmm. and they were going to build upon their forebears, including Lewis and Clark. Okay. Mm -hmm. So as too many people in the industrial uh, revolution with the two eras back to back, back the train up into the first, the first level, which again is financial material, greed is good and all that stuff. They ended up being stuck. And most people got stuck in Shawshank. Mm -hmm. And even if they had a, even if they were like, um, even if they were like red who eventually woke up, to the to the realities mm-hmm. um or they were like the who already was awake and he was talking about hope and such and things where you know it's like what are you talking about don't do that you're you're in shawshank right mm-hmm. so i'll leave i'll leave your audience viewers with that and see if it might be a spark to them yeah go go check out shawshank redemption i uh i love that movie um and i uh i use it in when we do training and development work with my uh with my consultancy um my other quote-unquote real job um <laughs> whatever that may mean uh <laughs> the, the other the thing that i do um but um we use that as an example of one of the five narratives that is represented in film that bosses hear from or bosses leaders hear from their followers that they don't they'd have to be careful to listen for. Um, and it is representative of a stranger in a strange land story. And I'll just kind of leave you to sort of think about that a little bit. Um, and then I want to, I want to make a no one put a pin in on unforgiven. And then I want to ask you a question about mentoring. And then we're going to kind of turn the corner and close. Cause you mentioned mentoring several times. And I want to talk about that. Cause I think that's very valuable for folks who are seeking to develop as leaders. And I also think there's very few real mentors floating around out there. Um, unforgiven. So Clint Eastwood's best Western, bar none. Um, But I would assert that in the 90s, there were two other good ones. Uh, There was Tombstone, uh, with Kurt Russell with that giant handlebar mustache and Val Kilmer hamming it up. Um, But it was just a big, fun, like, yelling, screaming old school Western. And then um, I would say maybe the second one was Kevin Costner's version, interestingly enough, of Wyatt Earp. Um, And it's taken me a long time to kind of appreciate that one. 
but you couldn't you can't get funding for that sort of film today you just you just can't that's why you know it's moved to streaming and it's like tombstone or not tombstone but to yellowstone now and, and all that kind of stuff and i'll just leave that at there so that's my two that's my two points on that um and yes i would recommend watching all of those films again for for seeing for seeing this kinds of things that sj and i are talking about the history the layering, the cultural myths. Um, and again, it's easily accessible. It's worth two hours of your time. Turning the corner to motivation and mentoring. Um, I'll frame my, my intro this way, my intro to the question this way. So most organizations offer something that they call mentoring, but they really mean coaching. Um, and they, they, they misuse those two words or they overlap them or they never use the word mentor. They never use the word coach. They just sort of throw people into relationships with each other increasingly with artificial intelligence, which is a bad move, but, um, and, and behavioral based algorithms that, ba- that match people up based on data, which is not a good move. Um, building relationships based on data doesn't work. <laughs> um, but, um, and by work, I mean self-sustaining and productive performance. You're not going to get that in an organization or in a culture by matching people based on data. When people are not based on data and, ba- and, and when people are not united based on data, instead they are based on experience, like in your case, or, um, or a mutually shared vision or goal, like again, in your case, um, then you have a genuine mentoring relationship. And this is how I define mentoring. A mentor is a person who cares not merely about your career, but about your life. The whole person that you are. Uh, inside of work, outside of work, they will invite you over for a barbecue to their to their house. Uh, you will have to invite them over to a barbecue to your house. Um, they will meet your family, they will meet your friends, they will learn who you are, you will do the same thing with them, and they will also, in the relation, in that relationship, they will challenge you to go further than you ever could have gone in your life, and they will, like you were just talking about, set up challenges for you, and when you get stale, they will set up goals, and here's an even more important part of that mentoring piece, because what I've described, most people will hear that, and they'll go, well, that's just a friendship. Mm, Here's the difference, though. Friends won't always call you out when you fail on your goals. Many times friends will enable you when you fail on your goals. They'll be like, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. You should have done that. No, no, no. A genuine mentor will actually look at you after they've done all that friendship stuff and they're embedded in your life. A genuine mentor will look at you when you are making a decision that is not in your best career path interest or your life path interest and go, I don't really think you should be doing that. That's not a good move. Or what they will do is they will say, you missed your goal. Why? You're capable of not missing the goal. Why did you miss it? And it's not that they will stand in judgment of you or that they are an ideal, although very often the mentee may set up the mentor in their head as an ideal. It is that they are seeking to get you to be the best version of yourself. And they can walk the line between being agnostic and being engaged all at the same time. This is why I believe genuine mentorship, you can count, genuine mentors, you can count literally on your hand, one of your hands in your life, if you're lucky. The vast majority of interactions are coaching interactions, though. That's the vast majority of interactions are just they're coaching, particularly at work. So I, I, I say all that. That's the framing. That's the convoluted framing. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, <laughs> here's the question. How do we find a mentor? 
How do we make a connection with somebody who is going to be able to grow inside of our lives? And then over the long haul, what value has your mentoring relationship um, with your mentor had for you? What should we be looking for? Um, very incisive. Um, well, I will, I will give, I will give an absolute hat tip. One of my favorite uh, little things I'll do on social H H forward slash T hat tip mm -hmm. for how you framed all that, because absolutely just like education and schooling get conflated together as synonyms when they're mostly antonyms, mm -hmm. same thing with mentoring and coaching. Mentoring and coaching are adjacent professional services that are meant to be value additive, not neutral and certainly not value subtracting or, mm -hmm. you know, drawing out from, you know. So now with that, the back to back question, how would you find or locate one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, people are going to hear they, this and they're going to go, how do I find that? Like, right. Where do, I, where do I get that from? Because that right. sounds like a big it, definition. <laughs> it is. Um, I would say this. Often oftentimes, mentors are hiding in plain sight. Ooh, okay. They literally could be in your blind spot. Mm -hmm. And if you're familiar with the concept of the Johari window, Mm-hmm. That's sort of what we're going at here. Mm -hmm. Or if you're not, look it up. Or yeah, I can go, give go a look link. It up. Yeah, go look exactly. it up. You can find it online anywhere. Just go look it up. Exactly. J O H A R I window. Just go find it. <laughs> exactly. I learned about that one self-directed over the last twelve years. So they're hiding in plain sight because of blind spots. Mm -hmm. So Terry and I, via Justin, was exactly that. I did not know the man. So it wasn't directly plain sight, but he was still hiding in plain sight in society mm -hmm. because he didn't stand out as someone with some fancy title. He didn't have a bunch of letters and numbers after his name. He was just someone that wanted to share what made him successful and significant with someone else who was willing to be hungry for the knowledge because hunger oftentimes gets defined only by physical need, mm -hmm. you know, lowest level of Maslow's hierarchy. You know, I need to eat, right? Mm -hmm. Totally, right? But how about let's define it on a higher plane of consciousness and awareness now. We're talking about hunger to get better, hunger for knowledge and wisdom, being able to discern it, right? So that's the first thing, hunger. You got to be hungry. Second, you got to be honable got to be teachable. Mm -hmm. You're not always per se going to completely be hundred percent in alignment with anyone, let alone a mentor, or if you go the other, other adjacent way into coaching. And then lastly, you got to be humble. I believe that America is part of this uh, last century plus that we discussed earlier without reliving all the, all the pieces. I believe America was overtaken by a progressive disorder called expertitis. Okay. The cure to expertitis is not a pharmaceutical. The anecdote is humility. Okay. So I had to take 
my four years of liberal arts education, which had a lot of semblances of credentialism in it, which is a whole other discussion for another day. Um, and I had to subvert that to say, okay, if I want to be in the e-pathway like you are, he was a multimillionaire, by the way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hiding in plain sight, mm-hmm. just had built up a war chest, right? And I never knew exactly how much, none of my business. But I did find out, though, that he easily could have paid for my entire, you know, if I wanted to go back through college a second time, he wouldn't have had a problem paying for it, is what I'm saying. So now back to the main question, once I put a little bit of a, of a little bit of a circle or a tree ring around it, how do you find them? A lot of it's, you do not want to be the smartest person in any room. So go into environments, which are learning laboratories, find the mastermind group, mm-hmm. search them online. Okay. Find a round table, which is professional. Join some sort of a cohort. Take that idea you have on a napkin and join a cohort. And then you will be in a group of people, which are all going to be learning from people who are mentors or perhaps quasi coaches, maybe a little bit of both as a part of the cohort as you go through it. Okay. So that would be how you find one in my view is through your network, which again is what Justin and Terry, and or by not being the smartest person in the room and those three possible um, possible um, pools, if you will. You're jumping in deep pools here. We're sort of the Mariana Trench or the Pacific here, not your backyard, uh, not your backyard uh, above ground pool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then your second question was related to um, what I learned or what I continue to apply, I believe is what you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. What are the, what are the things that, you know, as you have gone along that you have continued to apply, um, not only from the mentoring relationship, but also from the entire experience. Excellent. I just wanted to make sure I had that, I had that, um, I had that, um, prompt. So thank you. In no particular order, as I do a little stream of consciousness here, the first is to continue to become better you incorporated. I remain a solopreneur, sole proprietor, just like my dad was for all those years. So I don't need or have, um, you know, um, staff or anything, not, you know, and with that being said, I am accountable for self-leadership. So I have to continue to do what Covey taught us um, in 92, which is, gosh, another 30 years history. So same year as Unforgiven, he releases the seven habits, right? Mm -hmm. So keep sharpening that saw. So that's the first thing I continue to apply is, again, all I know is I know nothing. Second thing that pops is... And that, by the way, would be in that mental, that mental um, phase that I mentioned earlier. I went through the three. So that's the mental game right there. Uh, second is in the financial realm. My mentor taught me, and I'm glad he did, because um, um, if he didn't, I don't know where I'd be today. He said, always have multiple streams or sources of income, always. 
Mm-hmm. No exception. So for your audience, for your viewers, the schooling system, the conventional collegiate post-secondary system, oftentimes are stuck in the second of the two industrial ages. They're stuck in that corporate one. And they continue to push the narrative of get a job or a career. And they never talk about the fact that what if that goes away? Right. Yeah. So that is something that I continually impart. I am a part of a mentoring program at my alma mater Mm -hmm. called Real Life 101. I am part of what's called the Young Entrepreneurs Academy. I'm a part of a couple social impact organizations where I've done some mentoring work and such. Um, And I'm now paying that forward is I talk about that in the financial space, multiple sources and streams. Also in the financial space, investment and expense. When you put something into your trillion dollar computer, it's always an, it's always an investment. Don't be misled by the people who call investments things like stocks, bonds, tax-free munis, even more modern day crypto and such, okay? If you are lifelong learning, self-directing your education like I have for, for 12 years, you're feeding this ravenous monster and it's actually a good monster as long as you feed it good food. Mm-hmm. So that, that's another thing he taught me. So in the sociocultural, that third that I mentioned earlier, I learned from my mentor and I continue to apply to this very moment in time today as we record be around people that uplift you, be around people that want you to be better. Because I want to say it was John C. Maxwell, perhaps a few other thought leaders talked about the crab analogy, the the crabs in the uh, bucket. Mm -hmm. If you are in a crabs in a bucket situation, which is a lot of the sea pathway, by the way, they don't want you to get ahead of them Mm -hmm. because most sea pathway stuff is still stuck in an Egyptian hierarchy Mm -hmm. where the Pharaoh and all of the people that worked for the Pharaoh, right? It's still, vast majority are still that way, right? So the crabs in the bucket analogy applies there. So this is where you do the anti and you say, I want to be around people that want me to be my best self, you incorporated. So find professional associations, groups that you can be around, around be you know online, virtual, in-person, whatever, to uplift you because I have come as the education Sherpa to find true organic education with four E's. And this all came originally from the inflection point of my mentoring as the mentee is number one, edification, uplift people. Next, encouragement. Third, positive energy. Act as if you're plugged into an electrical socket when you're around people. And lastly, empowerment. Empower others. Those are the four E's of true organic education, and it all came out of the mentoring experience. Sounds as though that mentor had a lot to do with putting you on the path and keeping you on the path. And so as we come to our close here, what can we do as listeners 
viewers. How can we help you, SJ? Um, what, are, what can we do out here to either connect with you, to follow you, to figure out what you're doing, or to get more involved with your work as the education Sherpa? Well, I really, really appreciate that question and that open-ended that open-ended offer. Thank you truly from all phases of my being. Um, well, we'll start with um, the uh, connection piece. Um, I decided that social media has a role in modern day life and I'm not gonna completely disconnect from it, but I also wanted again to be part of stuff that was those four E's. Mm -hmm. So I scaled back my social media. So you'll find me on just two platforms, but I'm heavily active on one and the other one, I will still see your stuff and be able to respond. So I am the education Sherpa on Instagram mm -hmm. and on LinkedIn, it would just be under my name, SJ Barraconi. Since my name is that unique, uh, SJ being my name, not initials and Barraconi being a four syllable phonetic Hungarian last name, easy to find me. It's not uh, Jim Jones. Um, and then I also have a LinkedIn page, the education Sherpa. So those would be the three social sides. On the email side, I have an email address that we'll, we can get posted mm -hmm. rather than me attempt to sound it out here, but I will get that email. So email always works. And then I have a scheduler where you can book time with me like a lot of professionals do. And when you book with me, I'm just like any other business person. I'm not expecting that you're going to have to pay me immediately. We need to see what your story is. We need to make sure that my story resonates with you. So we have a win-win bilateral. And then we also need to make sure that what you're dealing with, your pain, your troubles, your roadblocks, your obstacles are ones that my any of my four solutions can solve for you, whether you're B2B and you run a business, whether you're a side hustler like I started with after Terry's mentorship, whether you're a student, whether you're a family that needs educational advising. So again, it comes through the scheduler that way. So in some Facebook, Instagram, email, and my scheduler would be the ways to contact. Now, how to support. On those first two platforms, you see my posts, Please amplify my message if you agree with me. Share it. React to it. Like it. Offer thoughtful feedback. Introduce me to people through email or LinkedIn, or it's a little harder through Instagram, but you can you know, use the tagging feature. Connect me to people that you think that I am called to serve and that truly could use an education Sherpa in their workplace, in their household. I'm here for them to serve, solve, and share. So that's one way. Another way would be as if you happen to be a podcast host or hostess and would welcome me to be a guest like I have been today, I would be deeply welcomed and appreciated. And I do my part to amplify it once it's released to the public. So you can count on me to share it to the very best of my ability. Another would be is if you have an event coming up where you need a speaker on a panel, virtual panel, you know, webinar, mastermind group, cohort, roundtable, where I can be of value, please let me know, invite me, let's discuss it. 
Another would be is if you run an accelerator program, you have an incubator that you founded, you have a co-working facility. If you want to work with me, I can help anyone that comes through your facility, either in a group setting or individually in some way, shape or form. Or maybe you run a cooperative in a home education world, or you want to start a micro school, or you just want to do straight on home education on the more B2C side, or you are a church leader and you, you know, I can help the families in the church through the family ministry or something. That's another way. So all of the above are ways that you can get involved in my vocation and my mission as the education Sherpa and whatever way it ends up, know that I am very grateful and thankful that you listened, that you watched and that you were willing to connect and to be supportive. Awesome. So we will have links to all of SJ Barraconi's social and we will have the email where you'll be able to get a hold of him um, in the mm, show notes below the player as usual um, on the Hassan Sorrell's audio experience everywhere where you hear this podcast Apple iTunes Google Stitcher Spotify everywhere you hear it um, including all the minor platforms. Uh, so I want to thank SJ for coming on today. I really do appreciate it. And uh, it was very um, insightful. And I think we had a great conversation. Uh, and please, again, check out his work um, as the Education Sherpa online everywhere where you hang out. Thanks, SJ. Thank you. And it was a pleasure and an honor to be able to serve Salt and Share.